Bible. We're about to get in and read the Bible, which is why we're here. Before that, I'm just going to pray for us as Claire comes up. Um, so join me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can come together now uh, and read and study. And so please, Father, give us wisdom. Please help James, Lord, to preach clearly and faithfully from your word. Help him to explain this in a way that we can understand. And help us, Lord, to concentrate, to, to ask questions about it and to seek to know you more. I pray that you help us in this. Amen. Awesome. Hey everyone, my name is Claire and we're going to be reading the Bible together now. The passage that we'll be reading is printed on the inside of the sheet that you've got in the um, So we'll be reading from Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Keep that uh, outline open in front of you, and if you want your Bible open, you can as well. And the outline, which will help you um, concentrate. I don't know, concentrate. Often I see people's outlines afterwards, and I see all these wonderful drawings on them. I'm not sure what that means, whether or not they're concentrating, or they didn't concentrate. Uh, keep doodling if it helps you, um, but uh, let's, let's look into what concentrate is. I, I hear... Now here on the grapevine, uh, that there's a very great uh, divide in the Uni Bible group, uh, a very deep and serious <laughs> argument uh, that needs to be addressed. 
dividing lines have been drawn and Facebook chat echo chambers. <laughs> and the great question is this. <laughs> is it Princess Bride or is it Ratatouille? <laughs> Which is the greatest? Where's Pearson? Where's Daniel Pearson? Oh, he's not here today. <laughs> Why is it that we argue about who is the greatest, or what is the greatest? It happens in uh, most areas of life. Uh, is it Pele, or is it Maradona? Ronaldo or Messi, and most of you don't even know who I'm talking about. Um, and if you don't like sport or movies, perhaps we argue about the greatest scientific discovery. Okay, maybe not. Or maybe the greatest romantic novel. Maybe. Uh, maybe we argue with historians about which was the greatest empire. Why do they call Britain great? Why is Britain called Great Britain? Why does anyone care whether or not they make America great again? Why do we value greatness? Or who the greatest is? I mean, what is greatness? As we shall see, this question has arisen among his disciples, as Claire just read to us. Take a look at verse 33 on your outlines. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? Well, they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. First glance, it looks like maybe they're discussing who was the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, or maybe who was the greatest king, or whoever was some other greatest scriptural person, or something noble like that. But the shock is, as we'll see in a minute, is they're arguing who the greatest disciple is amongst themselves. Now, to understand the irony of what's been going on on the way to Capernaum, which is where they come to in this passage, we need to understand what's been going on immediately prior. And that's at Caesarea Philippi, and on the mountain, as you see, Caesarea Philippi is right up to the south, north top, and Jerusalem is right down the bottom, and he's gone up on a mountain, and this is the, really the central section of Mark's Gospel. And at the centre of the central section is a glimpse into glory. I don't know if you remember, a few weeks ago, uh, Rob uh, took us through this central section, and remember, Jesus was transfigured, that is, his clothes were changed, and it was up on a mountain. And I've drawn a mountain, that is a mountain, by the way. Um, and it's really uh, spelling out who Jesus is. We often uh, sort of brush over the transfiguration and say, oh, that's not really important. But I think it's really, really important, it's really central, because there, Jesus is declared as God's Son on the mountain, as promised in the Old Testament scriptures. He really is the Christ. He is God's son. And the transfiguration points to his glory that will happen when he is raised from the dead. This gospel is about Jesus Christ, the son of God. But, and this has been crucial to it all, glory, this declaration of who he is, really only happens after the necessity of Jesus' death. In fact, twice, there's been two predictions of suffering flanking that central section. He must suffer and die to become the king. And this is God's purpose for his son. It must happen. 
And that's a bit of a problem for the Jews, you see, and even for his disciples. What sort of glorious king would suffer a humiliating death at the hands of, well, the religious leaders or even the Romans? It just doesn't seem right. And because of their unbelief, Jesus tells them that they are a faithless generation. See, it's carefully structured in Mark's Gospel. They don't understand or believe that the Christ must suffer and die. They don't trust in this Christ. They trust in what they think the Christ should be. And when Jesus tells them, at the second prediction, when he tells them about his death for a second time, the response is no better. Verse 32, which is just before this passage, they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. See, there's still no clearer as to what Jesus means or why he's talking that way. They don't have an idea. And so as Jesus arrives at Capernaum, on the way to Jerusalem, where he's going to die, I hope you can see the irony in their argument. It's ironic. They're arguing about who is the greatest. But they're on the way to Jerusalem where Jesus must suffer and die, as his father wants him to. And they're having a chat about who's the greatest. Our conversations this week, we uh, sent people out with this question. What do you think greatness is? And the answers were quite interesting. Uh, to the guys today, Jesse and uh, Jake said that, you know, a lot of often it's, it's skills-based. If you're skillful, you are the greatest. But on Tuesday, people said things like kindness, or sacrifice, or people who are bubbly, or maybe genuine, or welcoming, honesty. And even more surprisingly, someone who said, who are sacrificial. The disciples are having a conversation about who the greatest is. The greatest disciple. Verse 35, take a look. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone will be first... He must be last of all, and servant of all. Okay, you not? You want to be first to you? You want to be the greatest, is it? Well, it lies in humbling yourself behind everyone else and being a servant to all. And that doesn't sound very great, does it, really, when you think about it? And to show them what that means, verse 36, look at verse 36. He took a child... And put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, does anyone know the Antiques Roadshow? Anyone heard of that uh, show? Yes, everyone knows that. Why do you watch it anyway? <laughs> um, my friend once told me about an episode of the Antiques Roadshow where a chap who, who was obviously quite uh, well-off and well-to-do in English circles, you know, speaks like that and all the rest of it, um, had a carriage clock and he brought it in for valuation and, 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 they, and, and the guy who was valuing said, this is fascinating, Not that we haven't had a clock like that which is working. And uh, this guy just went, oh yes, that's right, I took it into the village and I had it uh, sort of uh, repaired by little people. Um, in England, if you don't know, um, the class system is quite pronounced. And so you have middle class, uh, um, upper class, if you like, and working class. And they're very big distinctions. And of course, who are the least? Well, it's the working class, and they're the ones, the little people who repair the clock for him. Ooh, 
Now, apparently that's what was said. I, I haven't seen the episode myself. Children in Jesus' day pretty much had the lowest class, the least status in first century Palestine. They were the little people, little people. And what Jesus is saying is if you receive one of these people in my name, these little people, you receive me. Receiving has the idea of not just a, it's like welcoming. It's like um, showing hospitality, bringing them into your home. Uh, treating them with respect and dignity. Or kind hospitality. So in other words, the greatest is the one who serves even the least, if you know Jesus. And serving the least shows you trust the king who came to serve all. Because when you serve him, you serve the king. And if you're not willing to receive or serve all, it shows you haven't quite understood Jesus or even the God who sent him to serve all. And as I thought through this week, I asked myself two questions. What does it mean to be a great one in our generation? Who are the least? We may not be the English aristocracy who look down on people and say, little people, because in Australia you don't have that, of course. Or do you? Why don't you have a chat? Who does it mean to be a great one in our generation? Who are the least in the generation? Just with the person next to you. Go ahead. envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So I think we, we care about greatness ultimately because we, we, I mean not just you, me, we naturally are self-serving and naturally glory-seeking. And that's what our loves and desires are. We want the honour and the accolades to feel good about ourselves. The disciples, well, they argue out of pride. But we all want it really. Now, Rob told me yesterday, we may not care about, we, we may not want greatness. We may not want to be the best. Who of us here wants to be the best? Well, I don't know. Not me, necessarily. But we do want to be recognised. 
do want to be acclaimed, we do want to be honoured, we want to be respected, we want the rewards. I mean, in sports teams, why do we support sports teams? Why do we want our sports team to win? Because not necessarily because you're in the sports team, but you share in those accolades. You can say, my team the best. Roosters or Manly. What's greatness in our generation? Uh, Ethan told me yesterday, Ethan Cozier told me that um, they're told, he was told in this class, you are the great ones. Why are you the great ones? Because you have the power to affect change in the world. Maybe you've never been told that in your class, but he has. You're the great ones because you have the power to affect change in the world, to fight for the causes that need to be fighted for. Who are the popular ones in society? Not the politicians, sure. Sportsmen, YouTube or Instagram influencers. I don't know. I think it changes though, doesn't it? So you're at this stage of life and you think of someone as great, but clearly when you get out into the workforce and you're building a career or someone's building a career for you, um, actually your impression of what is great might change. It could be money, it could be skills, it could be leadership. I don't know what it is. I know in Christian circles though, we might consider people great because of the crowd they draw in, or because they teach the Bible well, or they display leadership qualities, or their training is good, or their programs are good. And again, nothing wrong with any of those things. But what is a great Christian, Jesus says? It's someone who serves all, who serves even the least. I heard, again, Ethan was telling me that he'd heard that in a uni class, um, someone uh, asked them, who would, who would you not forgive? As of all the people in the world, who would you not forgive? And the answer was a rapist. They're the least, perhaps. Now, I, went, I did a mission at a prison about 20 years ago. And um, I remember we did it to the secure wing. And those secure wing contained people who were paedophiles. And they are locked up and secure for their own safety. Because there's a kind of hierarchy within the prison, amongst the criminals, of the least. But who are the least for you? The handicapped? The elderly? Perhaps the refugees? Those who are socially awkward? I guess it might be different for each of us. And it's very easy to serve the great ones, isn't it? Those we respect, those we are honoured by whatever standards we have. But the least? No, it's not so easy. But if we are in Christ, we trust and follow a Saviour who served all. And if you struggle to serve all, consider Christ. He's the source of who we are now. That's the first discipleship howler of the day. And the second discipleship howler comes in verse 38. They're still in Capernaum. And look at verse 38. He says, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, do you see the reaction of the disciples? Who are you? You're not one of us. You're not following us. You're not qualified to drive out demons. Stop it. Because Jesus is given the special authority to drive out demons back in Mark chapter 3, if you want to go and check it out. Stop it. I was um, raised in Hong Kong, 
and one of the perks of being in Hong Kong was that you were members of really nice clubs, right? And uh, those clubs bought you reciprocal rights to go to different places around the world and enjoy the clubs there. And I remember one summer I went back to the UK and I was, uh, there was this club in uh, London. Uh, I don't know if, you can, if you've seen one of those movies where it's a very gentleman's club and they're sitting there on the leather armchairs and reading papers and smoking, whatever it is, right? So they're sitting there uh, and as we walk in, I just remember feeling I don't belong. Um, I, they didn't have to say anything. The looks they were giving me were really quiet. What is it that brings such a sharp reaction from his disciples? If you were here last week, you heard that the disciples were not able to drive out the demons. I don't know if you remember that. At the mountain, Jesus rebuked the disciples, teaching them to rely on him rather than their own, on their own ability to heal. They asked, why couldn't we drive him out? And now they come across someone who isn't part of the gang, someone who isn't part of the discipleship club, and who can drive out the demons. Can you imagine being a disciple at that moment? Very embarrassing. Imagine how their pride was wounded when a little person, a little person, is doing the job. He's not one of us great ones. We're the ones who ought to be driving out demons, not him. Uh, I don't know if you knew, uh, Rob uh, turned 50 a few weeks ago. Do you know that? And it coincided with the day that man landed on the moon. Uh, and the thing is, there's been lots of movies um, out in, on TV about the commemora commemoration of it all. Not, not of Rob's birthday, but of, of the landing <laughs> on the moon. Yeah. Although Rob's birthday would be good to commemorate. Um, in a movie. <laughs> There's one such movie called Hidden Figures. Did, has anyone seen that movie? That's a great movie. It's a fantastic movie. It's about three African-American ladies and the part they played in putting the Americans in space by their uh, brilliance of mind. Okay? Fantastic movie. But it's incredibly distressing at the same time because it shows the kind of... Uh, uh, prejudice against African-Americans by uh, the whites. And, and they're, they're hidden figures because they're hidden away in the back rooms or some room in the campus at NASA. And, and the opportunity arises for them to move into one of the main offices. One goes to engineering, one goes to work on the big computer, and one goes into the main calculations office. And when, they, when she moved into the office, uh, there was this sort of Ugh, what's she doing here? She shouldn't be doing a job like that. And the best part of the movie was not when uh, they blasted into space. Oh, that was fun. The best part of the movie for me was when the boss, Kevin Costner, realised why one of the ladies working in his office was always out, away from a desk. Was she, why is she always out, away from his desk? Well, it was because she had to go half a mile away to go to the toilet because there were whites only toilets in that building, and so she had to go where the coloureds could go to the toilets. And the bit that brought tears to my eyes was when he smashed down the sign, and he said, there you go, there's no black or, black or white toilets now, you can all use the same toilets. And what he was really saying was, you belong here, you're in NASA. And from that point in, 
really there's a sense of acceptance at NASA for those ladies and we're rightly honoured for their contribution. The disciples need to realise that those who serve in Jesus' name belong to him too. Verse 20, 38, take 39. Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For I truly say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You see, belonging, this little one, belongs to Christ. He does it in his name. It's not about how great you think you are, disciples. No, even if they give you a, a cup of water because you belong to Jesus, even if they're serving you because you're in my name, they won't lose their reward. And that's very important to understand, isn't it? If you are perhaps are someone who wouldn't call yourself a Christian or even visiting, and most of us are followers of Jesus, on first reading, it sounds as if he's saying, do X or do Y, and you'll be rewarded, doesn't it? That's the sort of vibe you get. And all religions say that. So, what's the difference with Christianity? Well, actually, he's not saying that. Take a look at verse 37 again. He says, anyone who receives a child, what? In my name. Verse 39. No one who does a mighty work in my name. Whoever in my name gives you a cup of water because you belong to Christ. See, there's this already idea that you are already in his name as you serve. To belong to Jesus, to be in his name, doesn't come about by doing good. You see, obviously, often you think most religions to do good work, it leads us to be a Christian or rewards. But no. To belong to Jesus is to trust him. So you belong to Jesus first by faith. And that leads to good works. To belong to Jesus is to trust him, to believe in him, to trust him as the servant king who came to save as he died on that cross. And that trust will lead you to serve others just as he served us. And at the moment in the story, the disciples don't get that. They want recognition as the in crowd, as the great ones, as the great team, the dream team, if you will. And I try to think how we at Uni Bible Group might fall into that trap. Uh, the same trap the disciples did. How do we develop a club mentality? Perhaps a superior mentality? How does that affect the way we treat Christians who aren't part of the group? I mean, it doesn't just happen here, it might not just happen here, but it happens at churches as well. It's just two minutes. How and why the person next to you might be at the Bible or our church exhibit the same behaviour as the disciples go? Like the. the Looking down on people who aren't and Christian. That, that's what the question was about. Like, yeah. 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 I guess it's just natural. It's a natural way of wanting to know like the hierarchy of the people are outside the group and also where the ends of the group are. 
Social psychology. teaching, lots and lots of teaching, which is great, uh, lots of training, and of course uni is a time of great uh, dramatic, I think, growth, uh, mentally and spiritually, and uh, we have lots of lot time to learn the scriptures and what God wants and who God is together. Remember, we're all at the same stage of life, we all get on well, in fact, we go on mission together, actually, we go out on the walkways together, maybe if you do um, conversations or something. Lots of time to serve together. And I actually think it's a really good thing to be thankful for. It's fantastic that you get that training. But I've had the privilege of working in Christian ministry in different countries. And often, and I'm not saying it's necessarily happening here, but often, pastors have complained about the same thing to me. Students are often so helpful in serving in youth ministry, so keen. Go, but can sometimes be so divisive. Divisive by their attitudes, attitudes that are often born from pride. Now don't get me wrong, all those things are really good, all the training and all the rest of it, um, so we don't want to put that down. And, and to question things is not wrong, and to ask questions is not wrong. But I think if the learning uh, somehow makes us puffed up with pride, or the knowledge puffs us up, if our evangelism and programs makes us think that we are better, if our belonging makes us look arrogantly down our noses at our pastors or our local churches, if, and I think this is very real, we look at others' growth and resent them for it, I think we've fallen into the trap that the disciples have and we need to change our thinking. That's what repent means. It means change your thinking, change your direction of life. Again, I'm not saying that you're doing it or anything like that. I'm just saying, if... There's an arrogance. Antidote. Look at others who serve in the right way. Look at your churches in the right way. Look at your pastors if they're right. If they serve a cup of water in Jesus' name to you, they are for us, Jesus says. They serve trusting Jesus, they will not lose their reward. Even if you think they're a little person. It's a corrective to our I think just inbuilt arrogance and pride. And don't worry, everyone struggles with it. And in fact, I think this is where um, Jesus gets serious. Right? There's two examples, two powers, and Jesus is now gets serious. And it gets a little hairy um, from verse 42 onwards. Jesus is going to issue a grave warning to the disciples. There is a danger that the sort of greatness or superiority the disciples think they have will actually end up causing others to be discouraged or quit the Christian life. Look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. I think what Jesus is saying is greatness, the sort of greatness the disciples think they have, leads to disaster. The little ones are like the man who was driving out demons. The little ones are like the child who are the least. Those who trust Jesus and who are serving him. 
especially in the, in the section before, those who were stopped by the disciples. And by stopping him, the disciples may be causing him to stumble in his faith. And Jesus is warning them that it's better that life ends now for you than rather than face the horror of hell ahead. That's the point of the comparisons made. It's better to be maimed or blind or crippled, anything else other than experience the pain of hell. Because he says in verse 48, it's a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The imagery in verse 48 comes, is coming from Isaiah 66, where God is coming in as a, as a, as a, a sort of a warrior in judgment. And he's going to slay the enemies of God. He will enter into judgment, verse 16. And those who are saved will go out after this great judgment and look upon all the bodies um, that are lying there, who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched. What's he meaning? Well, I think he's meaning an eternal experience of destruction, because that's the, what the worm does, and that's what the fire does. But it's an eternal experience of destruction. And this is where it gets really real for the disciples, you see. Verse 49. Everyone will be salted by fire. Now, this is a, a difficult verse. <laughs> In fact, when you read the commentaries, you'll realise there's about 15 or 20 different takes on, on the verse. Um, but you've got to read things in their context, you see. And he's really talking to the disciples at this moment. And what do they think about themselves? Well, they think, I'm a great one. But what's Jesus saying? You too are going to be salted by fire. That is, I think you too are going to be tested by the fire on that day of judgment. Because salt, salt something with present, sort of purifying it, preserving it, that sort of thing. And I think that's what he's saying. You too, disciples, are going to be tested and purified by God's fire. You won't avoid the judgment, even though you think you're great. Everyone, all of us here, will be tested and salted by fire. Salt is good, Jesus says. In fact, salt is good if it's got its saltiness. But if it loses its saltiness, well, it's not so good. And actually, there's a, a picture here. Can you tell the difference between those two? If you eat one of them, it's fine. If you eat the other one, it may not be so fine. Because... One of them is salt, and the other one is gypsum. They, they, they resemble each other. And I think, I think this is what Jesus is saying. The disciples look salty. They look like great ones. The danger is, by their attitudes and their reactions, they're distinctively unsalty. They look like salt. They look important and great. But their squabbling over greatness shows they're unsalty. Ignoring the least shows they're unsalty. Stumbling other believers shows they're unsalty. They don't taste of anything, despite the fact they look the same. And on that day, on that judgment day, how can it be made salty again? Well, it can't. Now, what needs to happen is at the end of verse 50, look... Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. 
In other words, the way they're going to stop fighting, the way they're going to serve the least, the way they're going to rejoice at the service of others, like that little one, is when they understand that greatness is all about service. The king's service. Having salt, I think, is really just about trusting and treasuring King Jesus. Trusting and treasuring the servant king. That's the important thing, because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus came on the cross to buy you from the penalty of sin, which is death. So we no longer have to face the worm that never dies. I think that's what it means to have salt in yourself. That is, at the source of it all is understanding what the king is come to do. And that's what the disciples don't get. They don't understand. And when they get that, it changes everything. Everything. Our identity in Christ transforms our loves, our desires, our motives for doing what we're doing. Because we're trusting the king who actually came to serve. Our living becomes no longer for self-interest, but in the interest and for the good of others, just like King Jesus. Is that the way you're seeking to live? Losing your life for Jesus and the gospel? Come back to the greatest, the King who gave everything for you and had peace. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that, like the disciples in so many ways, um, our hearts are sick. And that we desire things which you don't. We desire self-honour and self-glory. And yet, Father, we thank you that Jesus served us. He served us in taking that punishment and serving even the least those who didn't deserve your forgiveness. We pray, Father, that the attitude and that mind will be the same as the Lord Jesus, who, though in the nature of God, didn't count himself equal with God, but became a man and even suffered death on the cross. We pray that will pervade everything that we are now, that we wait for the glory ahead and follow our King, the Servant King. In his name we pray. Amen. Josh is going to pray for us now. Hey guys, um, I'm just going to continue in prayer. Um, prayer is talking to God and asking things. So let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you for today. Um, we thank you for the opportunity to come here and learn about you. We're so thankful that we can freely do that. We help us to have salt in ourselves, as James was saying, to trust and tre treasure, treasure Jesus. Um, we ask you to deepen our relationship with you. Show us your truth, God. We pray for the ministries at Uni Bible Group. We pray that Uni Bible Group will be a place of encouragement and love that our community, community ultimately points people towards Jesus. Be with us in all that we do through the amazing conversations, um, the Uncover Mark, the conversations. Convict us to proclaim your wonderful news. We thank you for all the socials that happened last week. 
We ask that you soften their hearts, everyone who came, and we pray that people will continue to seek more about you and uncover more about you. We pray particularly for the Christian Union at Monash University, their mark drama coming up. We just pray for good preparation. Give people hearts to listen to your word. Um, and we also ask that the performance just clearly displays Christ and the gospel. Um, yeah, we just praise, praise you for launching, launching Uncover Mark um, at the university. And we pray that people would want to read together and uncover more about you. And you know, we just pray that in all the business and craziness of life and uni, um, that we can look to you and we can keep Jesus at the centre. We're so thankful that we have a hope to look forward to, that you have a place prepared for us. And just help us to find faith in the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, yeah, that we're made perfect in him. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.